it could have gone another way. When over a decade ago, a patient asked a nurse at a hospital in Sweden if he if she could teach him how to do his own kidney dialysis, she might have reacted with surprise and said, not possible. But she didn't. The nurse was open to the idea, so much so, other patients eventually got a similar opportunity. Then, as things went well, patients were given a key to the dialysis unit at the hospital so they could administer their treatments whenever it was convenient, including weekends or late at night. This success, when shared at an IHI national forum, caught the attention of many, but especially a doctor in Texas, who sparked one of the first self-administered dialysis programs in the United States. Meanwhile, also in Texas, a physician researcher was bothered by the reality that so many patients undergoing intravenous antibiotic treatment were spending endless hours in the hospital. There had to be an alternative. There was and is, and that's what we're going to learn more about on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We offer this live, bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find this on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I also serve as IHI's Director of Communications. One of the things that's so exciting about today's topic is is that the benefits of self-administered care are proving to be a lot more extensive than even some of its proponents had imagined. That's according to published studies and results, along with some preliminary findings we're going to hear about on today's uh, program. So I'm going to introduce our panel in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. As always, he's going to remind you how to be a solid participant on WIHI. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. A solid participant. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of the screen is the chat, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions and comments, so make sure that they're directed to all participants. When Madge opens up the floor to questions, and this allows the panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and you're listening by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, you might want to try calling in on the phone, and we have the slides, uh, we have the numbers on all the slides. If you experience any issue with the audio, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then to press play. If you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org and they will send them your way. And finally, uh, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience on WIHI. Uh, please take some time after the program and fill out our very quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. And we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about halfway through the show. We do welcome tweeting during and after the program. And thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can involve others in this conversation on social media. To introductions now, joining by phone from Dallas, Texas, Kavita Bhavan is Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases at UT Southwestern. Service Chief for Infectious Diseases at Parkland Health and Hospital System, and also for Parkland and at Parkland, Parkland, excuse me, Medical Director for the Outpatient Parenteral Antimicrobial Therapy Clinic and Infectious Diseases Ambulatory Clinics. And you try saying that fast several times. Uh, welcome, Kavita. This is how we make sure that you're here. Did we lose Kavita's connection? All right, we'll get it right back here. I know she's here. Also on the phone, Kedar Mate is IHI's Chief Innovation and Education Officer. He oversees the development of new systems designs to implement high-quality, low-cost healthcare, both in the U.S. and in international settings. Kedar is also an internal medicine physician and an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Welcome, Kedar. Hi, Matt. Nice to be with you. Terrific. And joining me in the studio right across from me, we have Alex Anderson. He's a research associate with IHI's innovation team. Alex is a founder of IHI's Diversity and Inclusion Council, and he's a lead for IHI's internal equity team. Welcome, Alex. 
Hello. Thanks for having me. All right. So Alex gets our first question, especially while we get Kavita back on the line. So Alex is going to do some context setting for us about uh, some, you know, basic terminology, self-administered care, and that will help uh, really throughout our discussion today. Alex. Great. Thanks, Madge. Um, So I think when a lot of people hear about self-care, they first think of diet, exercise, wellness, meditation, Um, those types of things. And those things are very excellent for health improvement and for improving individuals' health. Um, But in the context of today's conversation, we're really talking about patient-administered self-care. And when we're talking about patient-administered self-care, we're talking about care that occurs when providers train individuals to develop, to deliver their own care on their own time without supervision or dependence on a licensed medical professional. And as Madge mentioned in the introduction, the first time that IHI really became aware of the the degree to which patient-administered self-care can improve health and healthcare um, was through the the story of Christian Farman in Youngshipping, Sweden, um, and uh, self-dialysis at a dialysis center um, in in Youngshipping. And for those um, who are familiar with dialysis treatment, dialysis treatment in the home has been happening for many decades. Um, Home dialysis treatment has been a a part of of the healthcare scene for a while. And as we'll hear today, um, this idea is, is really expanding and shows a lot of potential for improvement in the long run. We'll hear a little bit about um, Rx um, antibiotic delivery, um, intravenous antibiotic delivery with Dr. Bavon's uh, treatment in, in Parkland. Um, but the, the potential here is, is really untapped at this point. We, don't, we would love to know more about what, what types of treatments can be um, good candidates for, self, for self-care. Um, historically, we've known things like diabetes management with insulin is something that um, patients living with uh, diabetes deliver their own care in that regard. Um, folks living with chronic disease like Crohn's, for example, may deliver their own Humira treatment. Um, families trying to um, increase their fertility, do their fertility treatment, treatments at home with hormone injections. Um, and even things like wound care. There's a lot of care opportunities that can transfer from um, licensed professionals to the individuals themselves. And IHI is interested in this first and foremost because of the safety, the quality, and the patient-centeredness. We know from the results that we'll hear about later that self-delivered care is safer. Um, It has higher quality, better results, and equally importantly, it gives freedom and autonomy to patients, to individuals. It it gives them um, the ability to rely on their own schedules and their own skills to deliver their care versus going to a hospital and staying for several hours sometimes, several hours for many days in a row, um, which can be very disruptive to to an individual's um, day-to-day life. And another benefit is that there appears to be very significant cost savings. We're basically eliminating unnecessary care and unnecessary waste in the system um, when we focus on patient-administered administered self-care. Um, in the slides um, that um, were just shown, you could see a model that IHI talks about in terms of self-care. Um, which shows good candidates um, in terms of the types of procedures and the types of systems. But generally, we need a procedure that can be protocolized, that can be standardized. We need a health system that's responsive to the needs of the patient. And we need providers that are capable of seeing their role transition from somebody that's delivering care to someone that's partnering with the patient to really develop their their skills and coach them through um, the, the needs that they have. And so there's a lot of opportunity here. And we're really excited to find out what other procedures could benefit from this kind of approach. Thanks so much, Alex. And we'll again show a nice uh, report uh, that the team here worked on uh, on self-administered care that is now available uh, on IHI.org. And it sort of pulls together um, a lot of what you're going to hear about today and more. And uh, we welcome uh, your interest in that and everything else that we're going to talk about. So now um, I'm going to turn again uh, to Dr. Kavita Bhavan. Um, Kavita outpatient parenteral, as you've taught me to say, antimicrobial therapy or OPAT, and that's what we'll hopefully say from now on, OPAT, has been used for several decades, but you and colleagues began to see a logic and rationale for SOPAT or self-administered. So what got you thinking in this new way? Um, what was bothering you about, let's say, the status quo? Welcome again. 
Thank you, Madge. Um, and you're absolutely correct that OPAD as a concept has been around for several decades. And typically for insured patients, it may involve getting infusions in an emergency, in an ambulatory setting or uh, receiving a full course of antibiotics in a skilled nursing facility or having home health assistance um, with OPAT. Um, what really got us interested, and, and, and again, just as in a way of uh, defining what this concept is, it's the provision of IV antibiotics in at least two doses on different days without an intervening hospitalization. And the goals, as you all can see, are very straightforward. And it's, it's essentially to allow patients to complete treatment, as Alex pointed out, both safely and effectively in the comfort of their home and avoid some of the inconveniences of hospitalization. And as I mentioned, um, and you see on the slide that Patients really do go through an algorithm where they're coming into the hospital, they have been identified as uh, having a complex infection requiring a prolonged course of therapy, and at this point, once they're medically stable and we think OPAD is indicated, there are options for them to go elsewhere. And uh, as I mentioned, these options, including skilled nursing facilities and infusion centers um, and home health assistance that you see here on the slide, all require uh, resources. So it prompted us to really think outside the box, if you will, um, and the box of the healthcare system as it is right now, if you will, is that at Parkland Hospital, uh, which is a safety net hospital taking care of a largely uninsured or underinsured patient population in Dallas, we were faced with a different set of challenges. And we would have patients such as the patient that's described in this slide come in um, with a straightforward infection that we could diagnose. We knew it was complex. We knew that it would require several weeks of therapy in this gentleman's case of an orthopedic infection uh, with staff. It was going to require six weeks of therapy. We had a treatment plan in place, but lo and behold, he was uninsured and did not have available to him the options that you saw in the previous slide. Um, many of my patients are um, at lower traditional uh, literacy levels, and so it's not uncommon to see patients that may um, be treated in our clinic um, with formal education ending somewhere in fifth, sixth, seventh grade. So what happens when these patients cannot afford the traditional options is that they end up staying in the hospital. And in 2009, when we started this program, that was sort of the status quo. And um, as you can see, there's, the need for that really is low. So there's a sharp, steep slope at the beginning of this graph that shows intensity of services in those first couple of days that somebody's uh, hospitalized. But once you've got a diagnosis and a treatment plan and the patient's medically stable, they're really staying in the hospital uh, in the patient scenario that I just described earlier purely for infusion of antibiotics with very uh, low-intensity services. And that's a burden on the patient wants to go home and get back to activities of daily living. Also, in the healthcare system, we're challenged constantly with how do we optimize resource utilization when there's so many more that we need to take care of in this area. Um, so the program kind of evolved as a challenge to think about how we can move from just volume-driven healthcare to value-driven healthcare, improving quality at lower cost. And... In 2009, when we sat down to think about how we could approach this, this challenge, the most natural sort of resource was right in front of us, and we thought, why not put the patient back in the, the driver's seat, if you will, and allow them to be actively involved in, um, in administering these uh, IV antibiotics at home without the assistance of a skilled medical professional. Um, and so, you know, this is our mission statement and vision statement. It was to improve uh, patient uh, care outcomes and provide that kind of value-based care with our goal of reducing hospital readmissions and maximizing our hospital resources so that those who are acutely ill could be seen. Um, so we're going to, I just want to say, I mean, I'm, as everyone knows on WI, one has to compress a longer story, many years, a lot of incredible thinking. And uh, I, I guess one quick question I'll ask as you begin to describe, so what does it look like? Um, was it very easy to persuade uh, all your colleagues and higher ups that something new needed to be done uh, or could be done here? You know, I have to say that we are very fortunate in that um, we were given space 
to try something different and really kind of implement an innovative approach to an existing problem. And I think that kind of support from leadership is, is really essential when you're trying to do something like this. We started out as a pilot project, as a proof of concept, and essentially we had four patients in a half day of clinic to see how this would work. And through trial and error and an iterative process, we have progressed over the years to where we are now, and it's the standard of care in our hospital for uninsured patients to be offered this choice to go home, participate in self-care, to complete IV antibiotic therapy. All right. So we're going to turn now to a nice image. Uh, It's clearly a patient um, handling equipment. Uh, John's going to maybe turn to this one. And um, in some instances, you might, a nurse might come into a room and say, hey, what are you doing with that? (laughs) You know, put that back up uh, on on the hook. But this is something else. So just walk us through a little bit. And we've got some slides to go along with it. Exactly what it is that patients are being trained to do. Absolutely. So this is actually a picture of one of our transitional care nurses. We have five, um, and our hospital is about 900 beds. And so they consistently teach the same way every time going across the hospital in different units. She's at the bedside. And this patient has been determined to require IV antibiotics, and there's a treatment plan in place. He has opted to do this at home, and she's teaching him at the bedside how to put the apparatus together um, because all of these IV antibiotics are delivered by gravity. They don't have any sort of electrical devices, pumps, um, elastomeric balls, et cetera. This is all by gravity. So she's showing him how to put the apparatus together. And then he, in turn through the teach-back method, we'll explain to her what all those steps are to a point where it's satisfactory, and then be checked off on a competency checklist um, with three return demonstrations so that we know before they're discharged that it's a safe transition home to complete therapy. All right, I'm going to jump ahead just a couple of slides here to best practice methods here, John. I see that one. There's, a, there's some other ones we may go back to during Q&A. Uh, there's a slide that, um, let's see, sort of back there. All right, it says teach back, closing the loop. Just wanted to show that one for everyone. Um, so that's a, obviously the process whereby you're trying to make sure uh, that um, the information and everything makes sense. Uh, so it sounds like patients, uh, they might go home with a little bit of nervousness, but perhaps a lot of confidence. Oh, absolutely. Um, and again, they're offered the option and it's presented as a choice and it can be either the patient or a caregiver in the family um, that may choose to do this for the patient. Um, and, and they are taught um, over a time frame using this teach back method and until they feel comfortable Um, we aren't going to discharge them. And here's the snapshot of the competency checklist. It's about a two-page checklist. You're only seeing a portion of it. But it's everything from as simple as tell me why you're on antibiotics to, you know, talking about spiking an IV bag and drip chambers and and, uh, specifics about the apparatus. So by the time they leave the hospital, they are comfortable and confident that they can do this, and they've demonstrated that for us. Okay. I want to just show a few more images There's a nice one of instructions, um, which tend to sometimes make a lot of us nervous when we're looking at any medication, uh, how you get the specific instructions there. John will get to that in just a second. There we go. And uh, Yeah, and this is... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say we started out with just written material in both English and Spanish and everything at a fourth grade literacy level. And then we moved from that point on to um, this video technique where basically the patient can uh, scan a QR code on the back of each antibiotic bag with their smartphone. It uploads them to a video that they can watch in real time, stop and pause, repeat whenever necessary to reinforce the education. But you can see here a drip rate of 25 drops in every 15 seconds for a particular antibiotic. And our patients can tell us this is what we're doing and this is the drip rate. Okay. I'm just going to, uh, one more preparing. And then next one, John, I love the clothes hanger. Talk about that for a sec. Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, this is this is really a grassroots kind of program, and um, we did not have at our disposal sort of electronic devices and more sophisticated equipment. So essentially, our patients are taught to go home, remove a picture from the wall. The nail serves as an anchor. They take a wire coat hanger and turn it upside down, hook it onto that nail. The bottom of that coat hanger becomes sort of a de facto gravity uh, pole um, at home, and they sit underneath it, and then they 
basically administer antibiotics on that calculated drip rate. And um, it's, it's a challenging process um, to be sure. And it's been incredibly rewarding to see how well they've done. Okay, so um, we're going to turn to KDR in a moment, but I want you to tick off some pretty impressive results. And I also want to make sure people see there is a, a very interesting video that's available from our IHI Open School. This slide here is of a, oh, it's a, it's a still from a video as well. And um, we can make sure that that link is available in our resource document as well. Sort of, I, I assume this is something to help patients learn uh, about doing this, kind of the step-by-step? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It, it goes for the entire process. Okay. So let's talk about some results, which are uh, really quite terrific. Um, thank you. Uh, so we set about to look at, you know, how well are we doing four years into the program to really get a better sense of where can we improve and, and how do we compare to the standard of care. So we looked at over 900 patients in those first four years um, that were purely SOPAT or self-administered OPAT, and we looked at clinical outcomes for these patients um, versus patients who were being discharged from our hospital with some insurance and were receiving traditional forms of healthcare-associated OPAT um, as referenced in that earlier slide. We looked at all-cause readmissions in a 30-day interval for both groups, uh, one-year all-cause mortality, and then we looked at the total number of hospital bed days saved um, to see what we were doing in terms of resource utilization by transitioning them to the home earlier. And what we found um, was with the goal of trying to show that our clinical outcomes were actually comparable to standard of care was that, in fact, our patients did better, and that was a surprising result. Our 30-day readmission rate for self-administered OPAT patients was actually 47% lower um, versus patients that were receiving standard of care, in other words, home health services or uh, at an infusion center, et cetera. Um, And in terms of mortality, there was no difference between the groups at one year. And over 27,000 inpatient days that were avoided, which translated to about $40 million of cost savings uh, per our hospital administration. But I think equally, if not more important, is improved resource utilization because we were able to then free these beds up for acutely ill patients to be seen and also greater satisfaction for the patients that we were able to transition home earlier so that they can get back to their activities of daily living. And uh, we know the home environment is a safer environment to be than in the hospital. Okay, and uh, the I, the patient's perspective on all this, which really matters a great deal, uh, just uh, say something about that too. Absolutely, we, you know we wanted to think about what patients value because it's of, of equal, if not more, importance. Um, and so we finished the clinical outcome study and then turned our attention to this question. And we um, basically administered a survey and sampled patients across those four years. And what we found, by and large, um, as you see in these two slides, is that patients really valued the ability to get home earlier and to be able to do this um, on their own. They felt that the instruction was, in fact, satisfactory, that they didn't feel like they were out there and unsure about what to do. They felt very prepared. And then among those patients who were employed prior to treatment, 75% rated the amount of time to return to work after treatment positively. We are, again, dealing with uninsured and underinsured patients, but they often have two or three maybe low-income jobs, need to get back home and uh, to, pay, to pay the bills or take care of dependents. Um, and so it was really, I think, important to be able to um, allow them to have that freedom that would be available uh, with traditional forms of OPAT. Okay. Well, thank you. You walked us through uh, some very, very, I think, significant uh, care innovations and research um, to go along with it and findings. We don't always get all of that uh, at the same time that we can share on WIHI. So I I think that's terrific. Um, All right. Stand by. We'll come back to some of uh, your observations. I can see people already have a fair number of questions. Uh, there are also a couple more slides that we can, you know, have other videos, etc. So um, we can make sure people know how to access all of this. All right, Kadar. 
quietly listening to all of this, um, and you've been involved uh, with the research and sort of collecting uh, the the promise of self-administered care along with Alex and others, and you've just been listening again to Kavita's uh, amazing research. So I just thought we'd turn to you for some reflections about the significance of all of this. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Madge. Um, you know, this is a really exciting, uh, what, what Kavita's done uh, in Texas is really just incredible. And, and just that, I mean, the results that you're seeing here, you know, 40 47% 30-day readmissions reduction, $40 million. I mean, these are, these are stunning numbers. Um, and, uh, and, and it, you know, what's remarkable about them is a stunning number is to do something that empowers your patients, gets better uh, results, and gets better satisfaction. So it truly, uh, this is a triple aim intervention. You're getting better cost uh, or cost reduction, better experience, and better outcomes for in, for people. So that's uh, uh, just an incredible and very exciting uh, development. I I think that overall, I think we are increasingly moving into a direction uh, with the work that we're doing here, especially with the growth uh, of uh, comorbid, multimorbid, uh, chronic conditions. We are increasingly moving into in the direction of truly co-producing outcomes with our patients. And as we do that, our health systems need to respond to that. The workforce of the future uh, needs to respond to that, to be prepared to co-produce outcomes with our patients kind of going forward. And in all of these stories, whether it's the story uh, of the Swedish self-dialysis or the, uh, the, the version that's now happening in Texas or Kavita's story here of uh, self-administration of anti- antimicrobial therapy, you see a couple of kind of common features of these co-production stories. One that you see is a willingness to change the rules and challenge prevailing assumptions. In every one of these stories, uh, you see someone, a caregiver, a, a provider that's making a choice to kind of step outside of normal practice to do something differently. And they weren't just about incrementally improving the system that had been in place for many years. It was really about sort of more fundamentally rewriting the rules um, and changing the system to better meet the needs of the patient. I chatted into the uh, WebEx here that I love this measure of time back to work, you know, the, the ability to return to work. That's the real need that the patients in these settings have. And the design that uh, Kavita's uh, team has offered and uh, the team in Jönköping in Sweden offered uh, Christian with self-dialysis was a design that better met that patient need of getting back to work and being, you know, fitting this really important uh, care process into the lives of their, into their, uh, into their lives. The second sort of theme that you see quite often here is a real valuing of human potential. Uh, you, in each of these stories, you see a change of the frame from they can't, they won't, or they shouldn't to what's really possible here um, and creatively sort of tackling that, uh, that notion. And I think especially in the story that uh, Kavita tells, where most of the patients are uninsured or underinsured, you have a situation which I think the prevailing assumptions are often uh, that folks can't or won't or shouldn't do certain things. And in, instead, uh, what you hear in the story from Parkland is a real valuing of human potential, uh, you know, looking at the notion that uh, the innovator is asking a different question, a, a what-if question. What if we place trust in the potential of every person? And doing so has really uh, leads to a different system design. And the third point I just make is that I think there's a real shift here in the role of clinicians. Uh, John in the chat asked a question about the implications for workforce. I, I, I think this does require a change to how clinicians think of themselves. In order to do, and, and Alex showed this earlier when he was describing what it takes to actually do self-administered care, uh, importantly, what it takes is a, is a different kind of uh, uh, clinician. It, there's a shifting role here. We've been taught as clinicians to prescribe cure-fix and I think as we move into this new era of co-production, as patients are engaged uh, uh, more in the in the in their own in the own in the delivery process itself of care, uh, I think the role of the clinician really shifts from a fixer to a facilitator, and from a curer to a coach. And you saw that a bit in the in the teach back closing the loop slide that Kavita showed. There's that shift from uh, you know prescription and and fixing the problem, which we've been uh, taught is our job as doctors and nurses to a, a role really as a facilitator and coach, uh, in a, a, which is an ongoing relational uh, 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 position that I think is really different from what we've uh, known our jobs to be in the past. So I think that's the, the third suggestion here. So I'd say the three things that I'm observing are 
in each of these stories is a willingness to change the rules and challenge prevailing assumptions, a true valuing of human potential for any, for any and all patients, and then a, a real shift in the roles here for, for clinicians kind of going forward. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Kate. I really appreciate those observations. We're going to turn to the chat and your questions and comments. Uh, some of them have already come in, but go ahead, others, uh, please uh, ask away. Um, I just wanted to go back to Kavita for a moment and ask if uh, there's anything you wanted to add. Kate mentioned this issue about uh, that changing role uh, for clinicians, and yeah. I'm wondering if that's something you experienced that other experience and how well are people doing with that? We have, and I think um, I couldn't have said it better. Kadar really kind of articulated the heart of it is um, it, the, trans, the slide that shows our nurse teaching the patient. Um, if you talk to our transitional care nurses, they will tell you that there is a, a palpable shift in, in the way they see um, how they interact with the patients, and they've now become the coaches. Um, really championing our patients to um, partner in their care uh, and and to produce you know really good clinical outcomes for the patient's well-being. Um, the the key to this entire program is is patient engagement and um, patient activation. Um, but to get there, you really need to have. Um, a team, you know, of providers that are willing to think outside of their traditional roles. And I think that's sort of what has evolved with our program. Um, Okay, very good. All right, here come uh, the questions, uh, some of which, uh, some of those uh, we we, we talked about a little bit as we were prepping uh, for today's program, uh, some of these. So, uh, John, just a quick reminder to everybody how to make sure their comments are seen by all. Yeah, please make sure that your questions and comments are uh, directed to all participants down in the Centu bar, uh, right down there in the chat. All right, thanks a lot, John. All right, so uh, a number of different questions. Uh, first of all, somebody is curious whether the SOPAT program is open to people with insurance. Um, Kavita? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Uh, in fact, we found some really interesting um, uh, observations last couple of years as the p- program took off is that we actually had patients that were insured that were opting to participate exclusively in self-care. There's a slide that um, uh, that you all may have seen earlier with um, a young man and an older gentleman. One was a Medicare patient. The other one was a privately insured patient. And the privately insured patient, when I asked him, why do you want to do this? versus having the home health care assistance that, you know, you are able to receive. Um, He really kind of expressed a desire for autonomy, which I think is something that Alex pointed out earlier, um, and wanting to be able to do things when it was convenient for him and regaining a sense of control at a time when you feel relatively helpless um, and you're you're not well. So I think that um, we're seeing that trend, and this is a slide. Um, These are quotes from both of these gentlemen, but wanted independence to give myself antibiotics without having to follow my home health nurse's schedule um, and wanting to regain control in my life. And so there's some real challenges with existing health policy, say, around Medicare. But certainly, I think um, this is giving us food for thought as we think about how self-care and, and, partic- and in particular um, in this program can really kind of transcend across stakeholders. Thank you. All right. Somebody has asked about legal risk liabilities uh, for the organization in uh, offering this self-administered care program. So let me first ask you about Kavita, and I'm curious, maybe I'll ask Alex and Arcator whether this has come up uh, in, in your research or from other programs. Kavita. Yeah, um, you know, honestly, it it has been uh, a non-issue um, since we, the inception of the program in 2009. Certainly, our institution and we have um, the, the lawyers at Parkland, um, so there is sort of an awareness, and there is, um, uh, you know, the the appropriate elements in place to be able to conduct such a program and, and have that legal resource. That being said. Um, OPAD as a concept has been around since, you know, late 70s. And, you know, whether it's self-administering the way we do by gravity or what most people would do if they were insured, having equipment and having maybe sometimes um, nursing assistance, um, it's, 
it's not a brand new concept. I think what's, what's new here is offering this in a very rudimentary way for patients um, at a very low literacy level. And there are a lot of, there were concerns from physicians. And if you think about physician perception versus patient's ability, I love what Kadar said about patient potential. Um, I think our patients have demonstrated that formal literacy does not necessarily equate to health literacy. We have not had any problems um, or bad outcomes related to self-administering IV antibiotics uh, since the inception of the program. Okay, very good. Alex? And and I might just add, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so this is not legal advice, but uh, risk and liability is just that. And to the degree that um, self patient-administered self-care is getting better results, there is less risk. There's less risk involved because the care is safer, the care is higher quality. And, and so there's, there's actually less exposure from the, from the health, health system's perspective. Okay, very good. A uh, couple of questions. Uh, somebody is interested to whether, in whether or not in the co-design notion, uh, patients are involved even in improving uh, the instructions, uh, the training, any aspect of uh, kind of the materials that they're given to do this on their own. Um, yeah, from my experience, absolutely. Um, as I said, we started out with four patients, and it was a real pilot project, kind of proof of concept. And as we developed over the years, it was really incorporating um, a, a multidisciplinary approach, um, which included our transitional care nurses, pharmacists, um, and social workers, care managers, and physicians, but also patients. Um, because at the at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we are delivering this information in a way that is, um, you know, understandable and that is meaningful and, you know, really kind of working through our process workflow to make it as, you know, easy as we can for them um, as they transition out of the hospital to the home. So we did incorporate patient feedback. Okay. Covering medication that goes home or is delivered uh, to these patients if you without insurance how how is that covered um, the way it works for us is that our pharmacy uh, deli- basically we, Parkland Hospital will give them seven days of antibiotics at a time so if we know they're going to go home on six, uh, with a six week treatment course of, of ceftriaxone they're going to get a week at a time and um, that is at cost to the pharmacy now we do have because of the patient population that we serve 340B um, and, and that type of resource but essentially um, whatever costs we incur for, from the antibiotics and the IV tubing and the basic necessities to run this program is far less than occupying an acute hospital bed, um, you know, when the, when the needs are low and the patient is medically stable. Thank you. Um, boy, you're in the hot seat here. What's the average duration of patient teaching? How many sessions are required for the training? Any ideas on that? <laughs> Yeah, so we typically um, ask for at least a 48-hour window before a patient is discharged um, uh, to really kind of have our nurses go up there and do as much teaching as is necessary for a particular patient. Um, We do have the ability, as I mentioned, with written material to communicate in both Spanish and English. We have some Spanish-speaking nurses as well. Uh, but interestingly, we've also had patients who speak, um, you know, uh, other languages, Burmese and, and, and dialects of Burmese, for example, and we've had to use a telephone operator and, and really think of creative ways to make sure that we are engaging them, educating them, and employing the teach-back method. Um, they are required after their teaching sessions to demonstrate on three separate occasions. So as much teaching as is needed to get to them to put to them to the point where they're comfortable, and then three separate return demos before we let them go home um, to self-administer. Okay, thank you. Uh, somebody has asked about sharing the competency validation checklist. Uh, I, Kavita, you can uh, verify if I've got this right. So we this was a we shared a slide that at least had one page of that uh, in the uh, Public Library of Science publication that we showed on a slide. There are uh, an unbelievable number of, um, and that's freely available to all, uh, hyperlinks to references and resources and tools in that article. Uh, Vicky in, in the studio here is going to try and chat that link into that article. I think you can find a lot there, uh, but it will also be in the resource document that we post to IHI.org no later than tomorrow. Um, and uh, 
Okay, so just uh, don't despair. And if anybody is looking for resources after today's show that they don't find, uh, feel free to email info at IHI.org. Kavita has been very generous uh, with a lot of material here, and we'll make sure you get connected to that. Any concerns or any data about uh, missed doses, people stopping early, not completing treatment, uh, life events coming up that might interrupt? Um, any any data on that or anecdotal or otherwise, Kavita? Yeah, I can. Yes, I can tell you anecdotally that you know, and that that will happen. Life events will come up, and you may have to, you know, um, be a little bit creative at times like this. And we've taught them how to flush their lines and keep the line patent. We may bridge them with oral antibiotics if they have to go away for a few days and they're coming back um, into town to complete therapy. Um, for the most part, because of the selection process. Again, I mean, this is not for everyone, but I think that it's um, really understanding that that there is potential in our patients. Um, And if you can screen appropriately for eligibility, we have eligibility criteria that's also mentioned in that PLOS article, I think is uh, one of the appendices. Um, In that screening process, we're able to find, you know, um, effectively who we think will be successful in this program. And so we don't see missed doses really. We uh, tend to get very high show rates to our clinics, you know, always somewhere between 90 to 100%. Um, They have to come back to get a week's worth of antibiotics at a time, so that forces them to come back. And during that weekly visit, they get pick line maintenance care and laboratory draws, and then intermittently they're seen by a physician to kind of evaluate their clinical progress. But I think um, we've been fortunate with fantastic care management and social work team that really come in at the front end and screen patients for appropriateness and eligibility into the program. So that gets to one additional question here about uh, nursing oversight for the patients at home. Uh, what's kind of the follow-up uh, um, and oversight as people are discharged? How do uh, people kind of get checked up on? Uh, you just mentioned that folks actually have a, there's a whole schedule where people are going to come back in. Uh, what's the way that people are followed uh, and can stay connected to uh, you know, professional uh, staff if needed. Oh, uh, so what that happens is that when they leave the hospital, they're actually given their appointment, their very first appointment, so that um, there's a smooth transition. They go home with their first week of antibiotics, and they will be seen in our clinic um, within that first week of discharge. And uh, they will come in weekly for nurse visits, where the nurse will make sure that the pick line dressing is changed, uh, maintenance of that pick line is appropriately taken care of, and then blood draws for just routine monitoring of labs on antibiotics. We never go to the home. We've never done a home visit. Um, the patients, it's uh, the responsibility of the patient to come here weekly for that part. And then, uh, as I mentioned, maybe every two weeks or intermittently, they'll be seen by um, a, a physician to kind of monitor the progress of uh, how they're doing for a particular infection on that antibiotic and, and decide when we can stop. The pick line is then removed. Uh, and these are all pick lines, by the way, that we place. Um, the pick line is then removed uh, in the clinic. Uh, at the end of therapy. Okay. All right. Keep your questions coming. I wanted to turn to Kadar and or Alex. Um, how does this compare in terms of uh, how developed the research, the findings with some of the other things that you've been looking at in terms of how evolved? Um, uh, Alex, you want to start with that? Yeah. Absolutely. It, so if I understand your, your question correctly, I think uh, across the examples that we've seen of patient-administered self-care, um, very consistent results in terms of outcomes. So in the chat, um, someone has mentioned the work um, that has taken place in Yongshapin, which we talked about a little bit earlier, and also the work that's taking place in Waco, Texas with Dr. Richard Gibney and their nephrology center. Um, and they are a great example of actually at-facility um, self-administered care. So patients are going to a traditional care facility. They're using the machines by themselves without the assistance of the staff that are at that facility. So it's not at home, but it's still patient-administered. And they're finding very similar results in terms of 
better outcomes with 30-day readmission rates or admission rates in terms of, of this case, um, better outcomes in terms of all-cause mortality, which is very interesting. They're, it's unclear exactly why all these results are happening because um, a lot of this work is relatively early in its phase. But I think it's not unreasonable to think that some of that result comes from the engagement from the patient side of, of having the, the power to really take care of yourself and what um, benefits that brings uh, aside from the obvious benefit of nobody's going to take care of themselves better than the person themselves um, on the safety on the safety side. Um, so there's 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 very consistent um, data to show that where self-care is applied, less in the moment mistakes happen or fewer in the moment mistakes happen and uh, and better results in the, in the long term um, seem to be coming in on a regular basis. And so I think an, an exciting piece for this field is to have more examples, more time and more evaluation to really understand what exactly is working, um, why it's working and, and how we can spread that. Thank you. Before we get to kind of the next frontier and some preliminary findings of uh, some interesting research uh, that Kavita could share with us, Kadar, I'm curious, do you see this as something that really is going to mushroom in the best sense, um, given everything that's on people's plates. I'm kind of curious. You you all have talked about kind of what are the ingredients uh, for an effective program. Um, and I'm wondering, would that should that mean that there's more uh, going on in this space than perhaps there is right now? And perhaps you could say, why not? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean you see, the, the short answer to your question, I think, Madge, is... Uh, we need we need more more examples of this uh, happening uh, all the time. So I mean I, I think there's there's a question in the in the chat about what's next for this type of thinking. What's next for self care? Are there other examples of clinical scenarios in which uh, self self administered care could be uh, relevant? These principles could be applied. And the answer to that question I think is yes. There 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 are many circumstances in which uh, right now we are we are asking patients to come back to health centers or facilities. Uh, and receive care in those settings rather than being, you know, transferring or, or moving patients back to their homes or and inviting them to, to and providing that level of service or care in their home setting. And I, I think that, you know, the, but the point is that there's still uh, challenges to actually doing that. I mean, we're seeing sort of a, a limited number of, of processes and procedures where self-administered care has taken off in this, in, and and by taken off, I mean still at the at the level of relatively isolated examples. Um, and so I think that while there's some plausibility to the value of this, uh, uh, that uh, you know the incredible results that Kavita has achieved at Parkland, and that we've seen from self dialysis, there's still a challenge here of, of spread, scale, and more systematic execution of these kinds of ideas. I think in in the field. So. Uh, I think this is still a stay tuned. I, I don't. I, I can't say for sure whether this. It, it certainly should be of interest. Anyone that's at risk, or 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 any kind of healthcare delivery organization that's at risk, or uh, should certainly certainly be interested in this with the the value savings that are possible from self dialysis or from uh, self administration administration of antibiotic therapy. Uh, there's real opportunity there. But actually seeing this take flight uh, remains, I think, uh, remains to be seen. And seeing this type of idea applied to other conditions and other circumstances, I think, is still a, 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 you know, remains to be seen. Thank you, um, Kadar, and thank you, Chris, also on the chat uh, in terms of uh, work uh, that Chris has been involved in uh, in the whole uh, dialysis field and improvement and uh, her connection to Dr. Gibney as well, uh, sharing some additional information. So we hope we can do that. Um, Kavita, let me jump back to you around some of your kind of some preliminary findings which per and I know we can't exactly explain why it is that people have a lower readmission rate than the standard of care, but that of course also raises all kinds of questions about the standard of care. So uh, that kind of connects to maybe some of what you would share with us about uh, some of the other uh, benefits that maybe you weren't even anticipating. Yeah, I think that uh, Alex really touched upon this earlier, and I think. Um, at least from our program, that why we saw those better results. I mean, patients were really in a very effective way engaged in um, their care, and it was a partnership. And so there was much more, I think, um, just, you know, uh, 
paying attention to the details and doing things appropriately, whether it's hand hygiene um, or administration of the antibiotic at a certain time and things like this, versus, you know, and and doing it in a very standardized fashion, versus when you have hundreds of home health agencies that you might be contracting with and things are done differently um, across agencies and whatnot, or there's variability in, in the care that's delivered. And um, the other thing that I think is is important is that um, we need to really be thinking about, well, if this is true and they're actively engaged and they are um, in a very meaningful way able to successfully uh, perform these self-care activities, what does that mean for their comorbid conditions? So that's something that we are looking at. And, um, you know, I think as Kadar mentioned, I mean, all of these patients, multiple comorbidities. And so diabetes, hypertension, for example. And we've got some preliminary data, we're still working this out, um, that suggests that, uh, in fact, our patients that have done really well with the self-administered OPET, that complex series of tasks uh, that you saw um, administering by gravity, that, in fact, they may be actually achieving better diabetes control as well uh, once they're engaged in the self-care process. So that's an interesting kind of trend that we're um, kind of exploring and, and going through that data, also looking at it for hypertension and um, things such as medication refill rates and, and show rates to clinic. I mean, does actively engaging a patient in one process translate to collateral benefits in other areas? Um, the other thing is also uh, ER utilization, and uh, we have just submitted a manuscript um, around ER utilization as well. And again, I can tell you just generally, we found a very favorable kind of trend occurring where um, there's less of just gross ER utilization post getting engaged in this kind of a program, a self-care program. And that's meaningful at a hospital like ours where many times that becomes the point of care for so many patients that are kind of, um, you know, not with a secure medical home. It sure is meaningful. <laughs> um, I, I keep wanting to underline, uh, you know, almost like with a pen here, some of the things that you've said uh, in terms of the payoff, uh, you know, literally and then figuratively in, in so many big ways here. So thank you so much, uh, Kavita. Um, on the flip side, uh, somebody is asking here, have there been any issues with part- excuse me, participants abusing the open pick lines? Um, no, that's a great question. We do have in our eligibility some very stringent criteria, and so um, IV drug use is um, an absolute contraindication. Um, in fact, uh, you know, any kind of illicit drug use, we want to make sure that people are aware of when they have to take their medication and not kind of um, in an altered state taking multiple doses in one day, things like this. So we have from some very strict eligibility criteria. To my knowledge, there is a paper out of Singapore that has looked at doing something like this with IV drug users, um, but we certainly don't do that. And so we have not run into that problem. Okay, thanks. All right, uh, a few words from John here. Hey, yeah, so we just want to let you know about some uh, upcoming programs. I know we talked a little bit today about self-care, but um, family caregivers are a uh, major topic in healthcare. And so we wanted to let you know about an IHI expedition that we have coming up. And what an expedition is, it's an action-faced, uh, action-focused online training program um, that specializes in teams. And they, and they last about two to four months, um, and uh, and they, they, go, they focus on some of the most challenging areas uh, facing healthcare professionals today, like engagement. Aging family caregivers and care delivery. Um, so we wanted to show you the slide here where you can uh, learn a little bit more and see the five sessions that take place starting on September 20th and going for the four months following. Um, and you'll learn about understanding the importance of identifying, assessing family caregivers, recognizing epp- opportunities to leverage technology and health policy to better support those family caregivers, and then uh, learn practical teams for uh, learn practical tools for your team um, to include family caregivers in managing care and especially discharge uh, planning. So. If that's something you're interested in, we'd uh, invite you to check it out at IHI.org slash expeditions or shoot us an email at info at IHI.org. Thank you, John. And it really relates to uh, mentioning family caregivers. Uh, reminds me of a question that's here, uh, Kavita. Somebody is wondering about uh, to what extent family caregivers are brought into the process in terms of training and education and, and being kind of part of the team at home also assisting. 
Um, To a very large extent. To be quite honest, um, there is a a large proportion of my patient population that ends up, you know, engaged in in getting this kind of care with the help of a family member. It is not uncommon for us to train both the patient and the family member simultaneously um, so that they're aware and that they're available to help. Um, and, And in some cases, the patient just says, you know, I'd rather have my spouse, my child, whoever be trained and just administer for me. Um, and for patients who don't have any, that, that live alone, we can provide extension tubing, et cetera, and they're taught to do it on their own. But to a very large extent, we try to engage um, the, the caregivers in the process because when they go home, we know that, um, you know, uh, it's not an isolated setting and that becomes additional help and resource for the patient. Okay, so thank you very much. All right, Kavita, we're going to go around the horn. I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, kind of what comes next. You've given us a, at least a teaser of new research and findings that we uh, can anticipate uh, learning more about. Um, I can't remember if it's uh, at least 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 patients who've been through this, uh, but uh, I will this continue to grow the IV antibiotic uh, therapy at home, and are there any other uh, treatment uh, processes that you're thinking of uh, opening up? Absolutely. So uh, you're right. It's gone beyond 2,000 patients now, and we, we continue to grow. And as we do so, we're thinking about other areas where we can uh, expand the self-care concept. One area of just kind of preliminary exploration, patients in our hospital that are end-stage heart failure and are not eligible for any kind of surgery oftentimes end up in the hospital at the end of um, life, maybe 60 days or more in the hospital uh, on a very steady drip of an ionotropic agent and end up passing away in the hospital. We'd like to have uh, a process where we can think about maybe with pumps and um, education again of family caregivers, allowing them to do this at home. And and so that I think would be an area to explore so that they can at least um, have the dignity of being able to die at home versus being in the hospital. And, um, you know, I think the big area of research that I'm interested in is understanding that we've gone beyond exploring human potential and believing in that, and it's been rewarding to see what our patients can do, but then understanding what that active, the actual process is of activating the patient in a meaningful way and engaging them in their own care and, and, and understanding you know, if there's a, if um, this is going to have implications in other areas for the patient, and also can we identify patients that are going to be ideally suited for self-care um, at the get-go? Is there a way to predict based on these activation metrics? Okay. Wow. Well, we certainly had made you talk a lot <laughs> today during this hour, and I know what a busy schedule you have. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kavita Bhavan. Um, Kadar, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, any final thoughts uh, from you uh, going forward and IHI's interest in this whole area? Well, I just hope we can make it easier for uh, innovators and health systems uh, like Kavita and Parkland to do this kind of thing. Uh, You know, there's no question to me that the work that Kavita has done here uh, really touches on all three dimensions of the triple aim, as I said earlier. And I think there are some early stage um, efforts. uh, Kavita mentioned one with uh, advanced heart failure. There's similar kind of uh, co-production self-care experiments that are underway with oncology, cardiology, and orthopedics. Um, and there's a nascent co-production collaborative that's just getting going that IHI is helping to, to put together with colleagues at Dartmouth and, and Cambridge Health Alliance that will further explore some of these ideas. And I hope that we'll have um, uh, more of these kinds of models of true co-production um, uh, to offer uh, into the future. So thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Kadar, for being part of today's program. Alex, uh, any any final thoughts from you? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so again, just to echo the, the congratulations to Kavita and her team. Um, the, the results are really unbelievable and I think speak for themselves. So this is really a huge accomplishment in, in the pursuit of the triple aim of quality, cost, and patient-centeredness. And I think that the important thing to remember is five years ago, this type of patient-administered self-care, certainly in the United States, um, was more or less unheard of. And who knows where we can go next. Um, one thing that we don't benefit, or at least I don't benefit from at IHI, is that I'm not a clinician. I'm not in a hospital. So there are experts in hospitals all across the country right now who often think this is probably something that could be taught to a patient to um, 
move forward in patient-administered self-care. And finding the ways to share those ideas and bring them forward and study them is very exciting from my perspective and I think is um, very promising for, for quality and, and value in healthcare. All right. Thank you so much, Alex, and all for all your help in pulling today, pulling together today's program. Thanks again to my guests. Thank you all for being a terrific audience and for your questions and comments. Hope you'll keep some of the discussion going. Uh, you can do so on Twitter or uh, in other venues. Next up on WIHI on August 10th, we've got a little bit of a summer hiatus, not much. Uh, we're going to be talking about the sobering but very important topic of workplace violence and healthcare. And we have a very, very interesting kind of a case study of what uh, is uh, happening in one hospital system to try to get a handle on that. So you can uh, find that information already on IHI.org. A reminder, you can download everything you've seen today, uh, the audio, the chat, the slides, uh, some of that you can find tomorrow, some of it you can find right now uh, when you uh, end your participation in the WebEx, you'll be prompted uh, if you want to save some materials, we also always invite you to fill out the survey if you would. This really, really, uh, we look at every single comment and try and see uh, what we maybe can do better uh, in the future. Any questions whatsoever, info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier here in the studio, as well as Vicki Minden, Matt Morse, who's behind me here, always doing a fabulous job with the mixer. I am talking through a spanking new microphone, as is Alex and John. So we're um, all about better uh, audio quality here as well. Joanna Carmona also helps us, Jamison Case, Vicki Minden, Val Weber, and Haley Ladd. And as I always say, it is my privilege, it still is, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks a lot. Good day, everyone.